welcome to Inviolable Voices, a podcast dedicated to exploring the mysteries behind our greatest literary works. Together, we'll discover the inner conflicts and adverse circumstances that help shape their authors. I'm your host, Nadia Padilla. It's pretty safe to say that World War II wasn't easy for anyone in England. Food rations, the blitz, the constant fear that loved ones fighting at the front would get blown to bits. Nothing about this makes for good times. Daphne du Maurier, the author of such loved works as Rebecca and Jamaica Inn, determined to stay in her beloved England during the war and was completely changed by the experience. She went from being the reasonably happy wife of the army star Major Frederick Browning to a woman unhappy in her marriage with one somewhat strange affair with a man under her belt that then led her to have a wandering eye for women. She wrote her most critically and commercially successful novel, Rebecca, right before the war began, but by the end of the war, it seemed to the critics like she couldn't do anything right. And perhaps most importantly, after a lifetime spent feeling out of place, she finally moved into her dream home, the home that had inspired her descriptions of Rebecca's Manderley, a home called Menabilly which was an unassuming house in Cornwall with a deep past that Du Maurier later claimed to love more than most of the people she knew, including her own husband. Join me today to hear all about Daphne Du Maurier during World War II. If there was one thing Daphne du Maurier craved above everything else in her entire life, it was solitude. That was part of what appealed to her about her dream home, Menabilly. It was carefully hidden in a grove of trees, away from the coast that could so easily have opened it to enemy attack in the 16th century when the original was built. But unfortunately, solitude was something she rarely got growing up. Du Maurier was born on May 12, 1907, to two actors who attracted crowds of theater people with exactly the kind of flamboyant personalities that left Du Maurier feeling suffocated. Her father, Gerald Du Maurier, was the son of the best selling author, George Du Maurier, who wrote the smash hit novel that introduced Spengali to the world, a novel called Trilby. Gerald had been the adored youngest child in his own family, and as an adult seems to have sought a replacement for the attention he had always received by seeking out a life in the theater as an actor, and then later an actor-manager. He became very successful, and in 1903 married Muriel Beaumont, an actress who became a devoted wife, providing Gerald with the adoration he needed in his own home. Du Maurier's upper-middle-class childhood home, situated right in the middle of the city of London, was always full of people. Her parents' friends, the household servants, and her two sisters. 
Angela, who was three years older, and Jean, five years younger. Even by the end of her first decade, it was clear that Dumarier was different from the rest of her family. Her father was charismatic, clever, funny, and loved nothing better than to socialize with others. Her mother was much more placid and reserved, but still, overall, a friendly woman who enjoyed others' company. Angela and Jean both took after their parents. They were both gregarious children, although Angela more so than Jean, who loved the attention of others. But while Angela and Jean would bask in the admiration of Gerald's theater friends, little Daphne, the middle child, would scowl and glower and sit silently in a corner, generally too overcome by shyness to speak. More and more as she passed through her awkward adolescent phase and her sullen teen years, she felt alienated from her family and her social set. She wrote in a letter that, quote, it is so awful to be part of a big family. Dumarie knew she wanted a different kind of life, but wasn't sure yet what that would be. The adolescent wrote to her governess, Maud Waddle, or Todd, the only person in the world she felt she could really open up to, quote, I must be an awful rotter as we have a ripping time always and no kids could be more indulged and made more fuss of. Yet I long for something so terribly and I don't know what it is. The feeling is always there and I don't think I shall ever find it. The decision Dumarie made in her late teens to be a writer helped her begin to satisfy this longing. She worked on a series of short stories and then, at the age of 22, began her first novel. These works almost didn't happen, though. Dumarie was much too easily distracted at this age by the opportunities for socializing her small group of friends provided her with. It was so much easier to go out to lunch with a friend than to sit and write, which she admitted at age 18 that she found a bit boring, at least when she compared it with imagining plots. Her situation at home became difficult as well, which made it impossible for her to do much writing there. Her father, whose career had begun to fail and was drinking more and more, had become overly clingy and possessive of his favorite daughter, Daphne. This manifested itself both in an obsession with having intense emotional moments with her, during which he would tell her things like, I hope that when I die, I come back as your son, and moments of anger and cruelty when he would accuse his daughter of sleeping with every young man she knew. Instead of bringing her closer to her father, Gerald's behavior pushed her ever farther away from him. Unlike her nurturing mother, Dumarie did not have a maternal bone in her body and had no intention of being emotionally responsible for her father. The yearning for solitude, for a life devoid of complicated emotional ties, became stronger than ever, and she became convinced that it was only in isolation from her family and London that she would be able to write. When Daphne Dumarie was 20 years old, the Dumariers purchased a home in Cornwall, the county in England that Daphne Dumarie came to claim as her spiritual home. 
In this wild and rough part of the world, Dumarier was able to live without the elegance she had come to scorn in her London life. She would spend as much time as she could outdoors, sailing, swimming, walking along the cliffs. She began to beg her parents to let her stay there during the winter as well, so that she would be able to work in complete solitude. In 1929, her parents finally gave in, and Dumarier managed to write her first novel in a few short months and be supremely happy alone in Cornwall. During quiet moments, she would fantasize about moving into a home close by, a fairly small, quiet, unassuming building named Menabilly. The house was now practically a ruin, but it had once been the family seat of one of the two most prominent families in Cornwall, the Rashleys. This wasn't what she cared about, though. What Dumarier loved about the house from the first moment she saw it was how isolated it was, hidden so that it was impossible to find unless you knew exactly where you were going. She got into the habit of visiting the house and began to believe that it was sitting there asleep, waiting for her to wake it up. Here she would dream she would live in perfect solitude, away from any emotional demands. But a couple of years later, she decided to abandon this dream vision for a dashing war hero, Major Frederick Browning. Dumarier had never fallen in love with anyone the way she did with Major Browning, or Tommy, as people called him. He was 10 years older than Dumarier, a World War I veteran who was confident, forthright, honest, and assertive. And, since she had just ended her first and only relationship with a young man who was overly emotional like her father, Dumarier was thrilled with Tommy. In fact, she was so enamored of him that she suggested they have an affair almost immediately after they met, which he refused as against his principles. Two months later, she impulsively proposed to him, and he accepted. This marriage demanded a whole series of readjustments from Dumarier. She was an army wife now, and eventually she became the wife of the second in command of his unit. This came with a whole set of responsibilities. She found herself forced to order servants around and attend large social functions and improve the living conditions of the families of the men under her husband tasks for which she was woefully ill-suited. She would later work a lot of her frustrations with running a household into her depictions of the nameless narrator's experiences running Manderley in her 1938 novel, Rebecca. She also found that, in spite of the fact that Tommy was a tough army man, he had his weaknesses. He would have nightmares sometimes of the most traumatic experience he had undergone in World War I, when three companies had been trapped in a wood by enemy fire and he had been the only officer who had made it out alive. He would cling to Dumarier then, sobbing like a hysterical child, as she described it in a letter. She had hoped, by marrying Tommy, she would be avoiding a situation like that her parents had, but it was becoming clear that, in his own way, Tommy was as needy as Gerald. 
Dumarie also had her two daughters, Tessa and Flavia, during the 1930s, to whom she was never terribly attached while they were children. She wasn't unkind or cold to her daughters exactly, but she didn't really love spending time with them, in part because she resented the fact that they were not the sons she would infinitely have preferred. In fact, she tried to spend as little time around them as possible, especially when she was in the middle of writing a novel, when she would sometimes take off for the Dumarier family home in Cornwall alone. She would write to a friend, quote, I must say I am not one of those mothers who live for having their brats with them all the time, and I sincerely look forward to the time when Flavia and Tessa will be of a decent, companionable age. Before marriage, she had hoped that being an army wife would make her less selfish, but she found over the years that it simply made her long for solitude even more. In 1938, when it began to be clear to nearly everyone in England that war would be unavoidable, Dumarier was riding high from the excitement her novel Rebecca had caused. The book had been by far the most difficult for her to write. She had started it in Egypt during the summer of 1937 when her husband had been assigned to work there and when she had been full of yearning for England and especially for Cornwall and especially for Menabilly. All of this homesickness which was making her absolutely wretched tinged the novel she was working on with such an intense melancholy and longing that it struck nearly everyone who read it. One of the first readers commented, quote, I don't know another author who imagines so hard all the time. She had herself been apprehensive about the novel's success, thinking it too grim to appeal to many people, but copies of the book flew off the shelves. What many early critics didn't see, and what many people today still don't, was how good the novel is. It's a sharp, perceptive study of jealousy and the powers of the imagination, which can make things seem more real than reality. Dumarie basked in her own imaginary future, a future filled with ever-increasing paychecks and growing authorial fame. But then Tommy started telling her to prepare herself because war would surely be coming to England. She trusted Tommy's judgment in these things. She knew almost nothing about politics, but Tommy was in the Grenadier Guards and had fought in World War I, and if he said a war was coming, then a war was coming. This sent Dumarier into a panic. This 31-year-old had, up until this point, led a pretty sheltered life, protected first by her parents and then by her husband, and her position as the wife of a powerful war hero. That autumn of 1938, during a vacation at the Dumarier family home in Cornwall, she would walk along the coast and imagine the ocean full of warships and the coast crawling with soldiers, and she would be anxious almost to tears. She worked herself into such a state that when she visited an elderly neighbor who had been diagnosed with bowel cancer, 
the dying woman ended up comforting her, not the other way around. Dumarie realized after she returned home how sensitive she was to everything. Her daughters and husband were all sick at the time and were driving her crazy. Even a visit to London, during which she had been stuck in traffic for 40 minutes, sent her into hysterics. She had no idea, after the experience made her ill, how she was going to cope with war. Dumarier began to cast around wildly for every religious and philosophical text she could get her hands on. She had never been religious before. In finishing school at the age of 18, she had interrupted a curate's religious instruction by grabbing a chair and telling the curate she was going to kill him. When he had cowered on the floor in terror, she had crowed triumphantly, pointing out that if all he was saying about eternal life was true, he wouldn't have been scared. But now, Dumarie felt like she needed direction, some way to make sense of the chaos her world was descending into. None of what she read seemed to fit the bill, though. But she was eventually swayed by a group a friend was a part of, a group that eventually became known as the Moral Rearmament Movement, or MRA. This was a group that wanted to create a moral revolution by encouraging each individual to begin a moral revolution in him or herself. Faced with the thought of the death and destruction the impending war would surely bring, Dumarie wrote, quote, The MRA people are right. We ought to give up trying to make the money, trying to be successful, trying to live by the values of the world and get back to simplicity in all things, kindliness and simple faith. Selfishness is the root of all evil. When a member of the MRA organization approached her to write up a series of stories demonstrating the positive effects of the MRA program on people's lives, she eagerly agreed. She longed to be useful, to kick off the selfishness she had lived with complacently for years. Dumarie was being perfectly sincere, but as is often the case when we try to live our lives in a more meaningful way, she found it difficult to put her plans into action. She wrote a member of the MRA with her usual keen self-awareness that, quote, I think I must be a rotten receiving set, a valve loose or something. All I get is a wait and see signal and it will arrange itself. Filled with fear at the thought that something might happen to Tommy, Dumarie decided to become pregnant again at the beginning of 1940, at the end of her 32nd year. She wrote, quote, I somehow felt the time had come for another effort at a son, but I'm quite prepared for another lumping daughter. But of course, after she succeeded in getting pregnant within a couple of months, she became worried about what state the country would be in by the end of the year. She quipped to her former governess that her child's birth, quote, will probably coincide with the invasion and Hitler's march through London. A decree will go out that all children are to be named Adolf. Although Dumarie knew that Hitler was out there invading and murdering, the months she spent pregnant with her third child were largely pleasant. She and the children had moved in with a childless couple near where Tommy's brigade was stationed, which, because Dumarie had no domestic responsibilities, 
proved to be so much more comfortable than living in her own home. She wrote to her old governess that they had moved in, quote, with some perfectly charming people called Puxley, who have a delightful Lutyens house, host and hostess most congenial. I breakfast in bed and wander in the garden and go for walks to my heart's content. Dumarie's two daughters, who were now seven and three, loved Mrs. Puxley, who became a sort of surrogate mother for the two girls and who thus gave Dumarie the chance to focus on her writing. Her time at the Puxley home was both thrilling and worrisome for her, though, because she began to realize that she preferred being around Mr. Puxley, or Christopher, much more than her own husband. Tommy was always tense and irritable now when he even managed to be home because the war kept him so busy she rarely saw him. He was always overwhelmed by how badly the war office had run and was continuing to run the army. He wasn't able to stop talking about it while he was home. Christopher, by contrast, was gentle, relaxed, a piano player who serenaded Dumarier with Chopin in the evenings. She felt connected to him in a way she rarely did with Tommy anymore, who was all war, 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 while Christopher had time and mental energy for the artistic, imaginative pursuits that flooded Dumarier's own life. After she moved into her home with her children, she breathed a sigh of relief and tried hard not to think about Christopher anymore. After this move, she had a new development to distract her for a while, on November 3rd, 1940, she finally managed to give birth to a son. She was delighted with her new baby, and while she had deposited both of her daughters with their nanny almost as soon as she had finished giving birth to them, she couldn't bear to be parted from this little boy, whom she named Christian. As soon as he was born, she couldn't help but feel that her son looked just like his grandfather, who had died a few years earlier. She remembered Gerald's wish that he might be reborn as her son and felt that perhaps it might have come true, which comforted her now. The birth brought on the postpartum depression Dumarie was always prone to, though, and this time around she had a lot to think about. She felt embarrassed now about how infatuated she had been with Christopher, which she felt more than anything as a betrayal of the new principles she had espoused through the MRA, she felt guilty, not irritated, when Tommy would come home exhausted because of his efforts to keep her and her country men and women safe. She wrote one of her MRA friends around this time that, quote, I keep finding I am never grateful enough to God. She pushed herself through this depression with a new novel called Frenchman's Creek about a married woman who has an affair with a pirate and, at novel's end, returns to her husband. A plot probably based on the experiences she had been going through recently. The writing of this novel was troubled, though. Halfway through, her nanny became seriously ill, and Dumarier was forced to take over the care of her children, who, of course, developed measles. She described her new life as, quote, after washing out bedpans and coping with the measled ones, 
I rush and minister to Christian, and when I have turned him upside down, pinned his nappy on wrong, I hurl him into his cot and find Flavia wanting to put on a party frock. I chuck her a doll to play with and then rush to the privacy of a room alone and hammer upon my typewriter at Frenchman's Creek, my new book, and I am lucky if I get a page written. She took this ordeal as an opportunity to put aside her selfishness, but wrote to one of her MRA friends that, quote, It is awfully hard to go on slowly and be cheerful. Finally, one day, when everyone in the house was sick and her frustration had reached its breaking point, she exclaimed to God, quote, Now, please, let me take it all. All the pain, all the suffering, all the unhappiness, and let the children have no more. The next day, she woke up with a fever, which turned into pneumonia, something that Dumarie couldn't help but see as a sign from God. She was sick for weeks, during which time she felt that she was, quote, looking at the world through the wrong end of a telescope, the world itself and the people on it being very small and ant-like, and all their activities a little futile. Christopher made her long convalescence bearable. When her nanny had become sick, the Puxleys had graciously offered an invitation to her to come stay with them again. Dumarie felt a little too overwhelmed to refuse. Once she began to recover, she would sit in the drawing room and listen to Christopher play the piano in the evenings. He would carry her upstairs at the end of the night and lay her in bed because Dumarie claimed she was too tired to walk upstairs. The nanny began to suspect that all was not well between Christopher and her employer and would come down to the drawing room sometimes and ask Christopher not to play the piano because he was keeping the children awake. When Tommy came back for vacation from his regiment, which was now stationed far from the Puxley's home, he looked more exhausted and irritable than ever. Dumarie felt tied to Tommy after so many years of marriage and had no intention of leaving him, but she had begun to feel that they had slowly drifted apart over the course of the war. His new life, full of 14-hour days spent helping his country win the war and occasional leaves during which they managed to see each other, left Dumarie feeling like she wasn't a big part of his life anymore. So she kept going with Christopher. She knew the relationship was never going to lead to sexual relations since Christopher was impotent. They would kiss and caress, but Dumarie treasured her connection with Christopher mainly because of the emotional benefits it brought her, not the physical ones. Everyone around her knew what was going on, however, or thought they did, except for Christopher's wife, Patty Puxley, who remained oblivious. Dumarie's nanny became so concerned with the situation that she contacted Tommy's sister and asked her to tell Tommy about Dumarie's obsession with Christopher. Tommy never found out, though. Patty Puxley found Dumarie in Christopher's arms one night before Tommy's sister could tell him anything. When this happened, Patty stood for a moment, speechless. Then she whispered, I thought you were my friend. 
to Dumarier and left the room. Of course, Dumarier left the house as soon as she could, telling everyone she knew that she was simply leaving to give the Puxleys a break. This did give her the chance to move back to Cornwall, though, to a home that the Rashleys of Menabilly had also owned. Here, she began to write a novel based on Christopher's family history, a novel that, unlike Frenchman's Creek, was not received well when it was released a year later. On paper, her publisher had painstakingly saved for the book he had been sure would be a hit. While she worked on the book, she saw quite a lot of Christopher, who would come down from his home and would stay at a nearby hotel. Dumarier rented an isolated hut, and there they would make love. Dumarier fought off her feelings of guilt by telling herself that technically she hadn't been unfaithful since they weren't having sex. Sometimes the feelings proved to be too much, though. Dumarier felt especially guilty about how she had hurt Patty, who had been so kind to her. She still held on to her MRA beliefs and would sometimes ask Christopher to pray with her in the hopes that, quote, it may be a beginning of the first tiny step in a new life. Tommy was far away during these months in North Africa overseeing the war effort there. Dumarier had been deeply unhappy when he had left right before Christmas of 1942. I hate him going out into it all, she complained. She was feeling miserable about pretty much everything in her life when in mid-February 1943, she heard that Tommy had been in a glider crash. He had been incredibly lucky, though, when Dumarier met him in Wiltshire, where he had been sent to recuperate. She found that he had only suffered a torn shoulder and a mild knee injury. They were finally able to spend time together after that, though, and Dumarier realized how necessary that had been. After they settled into the old rhythms of their life together, they were able to build up the intimacy they had lost during the war, and Dumarier's feelings for him began to come back. But they could only block out the war for so long. Tommy returned to North Africa, and Dumarier was left feeling bitter, with the conviction that the war had ruined her marriage. In 1943, she began to feel the pinch in other ways. While she had earned £25,000 in 1942, she lost 22500 of it through taxation, something that left her worried about her financial future and somewhat indignant. She quipped that, quote, My sale of Frenchman's Creek has given the government enough to buy a Lancaster bomber, I think I shall go about with a placard saying, I am a benefactress and am winning the war more than any WAAF. WAAF stands for the Women's Auxiliary Air Force. The censorship of civilian letters did not make her very happy either, and when her favorite beach in Cornwall was closed and she was forbidden from taking her boat out onto the river, she began to feel that the war was ruining not just her marriage, but her life. And then, Menabilly walked into her life. 
She had been in love with this house for almost 17 years and had visited it as often as she could. Now, Dumarier found out that the owner was renting the house again, and she practically threw herself at him. She didn't care that the owner was basically about to scam her. He expected her to sign a 20-year lease, which would be terminated as soon as he died and his cousin inherited. He also expected her to repair and maintain the house, which would be shockingly expensive because it was basically a ruin at this point. But Dumarier wrote, I'd rather be rooked than not have it, and hired building crews to fix up her dream home. Through the expense, especially high during wartime when building materials were scarce, through the waiting, Dumarier was maintained by the thought that here she would finally get the solitude she'd craved all her life, and more than ever in recent months, during which she had been cramped in a small cottage with her three children and servants. Menabili was, according to her, the nearest thing I can find to a desert island at the moment. The ghosts and bats will keep visitors off. She would never regret her choice to rent Menabili. She later claimed that, quote, It makes me a little ashamed to admit it, but I do believe I love Mena more than people. She was so excited about the whole thing that she moved in with her children before the repairs had been fully completed. They moved in around Christmas of 1942, at the beginning of a particularly cold winter, to a house that had completely inadequate heating. Her daughters slept with bags of warmed salt strapped to their ears to prevent the earache that the intense cold produced. There were other problems with the house. Rats scuttled through the walls and ceilings of the house all night, and bats flew in and out of the screenless windows. Their bath was infested with beetles and would fill only with green water because the water came from a pond and wasn't properly filtered. But Dumarier loved it. None of this mattered when she was, as she put it, quote, lucky enough to inhabit this lovely old house and its mellow, peaceful surroundings. She much preferred Menabili, even in this rough state, to the elegance in which she had been raised. Here were the things that mattered to her, solitude and a deep connection to the past. What's more, the house out in the middle of nowhere made her feel safe from the war. She knew that this was an illusory safety, though. Tommy was traveling from one intensely dangerous situation to another, all of which affected her. He kept being promoted and becoming involved in more and more dangerous missions. She became more than ordinarily fearful, hovering over her children in a way she had never done before, convinced that something terrible was about to happen. This feeling was intensified by something that occurred in January of 1944, Mines had been lain at the river mouth by Menabili, which, that month, the army had decided to remove. In the process, one of the mines exploded, leaving one soldier dead and another terribly mangled. Dumarie heard the explosion and later saw the injured man being carried along the beach. The ambulance took a long time to come, and while they waited, Dumarie could only stand there and watch 
as the young man bled and bled and bled. This was her first real brush with the carnage of the war, and she was horrified by the sight. It's ironic then that when her husband began to tell her in the middle of 1945 that the war would soon be ending, Dumarie's feelings weren't all positive. Of course, she was happy that there wouldn't be any more bloodshed, but on a personal level, the war ending made everything complicated. By 1945, Dumarie hadn't lived with her husband for almost six years. During those six years, she had finally found the solitude she had craved her whole life, and she didn't really want to go back. She liked sleeping in her own bed and spending her evenings alone, and couldn't imagine what it would be like to have to fit her husband into her life again, especially since she was so much happier this way than she had been when she had had to share her life with Tommy. Tommy did not share her worries. He wrote her on their 12th wedding anniversary in July of 1944 that, quote, I miss our roots and have almost forgotten all our small sayings and doings, but they'll all come back. What seems to have worried Dumarie the most, though, was the possibility of having to leave Menabilly. In the past, she and the children had followed Tommy from assignment to assignment, renting homes all over England. Now she couldn't bear the thought of abandoning Menabilly, not when she had worked so hard to earn her bliss. In 1944, Tommy was stationed in the Far East Theater, and they saw each other even less than they had before. Dumarier sent him magazine articles on the problems soldiers and their spouses might face after the war, in the hopes that he would come home prepared. Tommy denied that these predictions would ever come true for them. He wrote his wife, quote, I quite agree reinstating our roots may be difficult, but we are much more together than most people and have always been happy to sit on opposite sides of the fire reading. On the day the war ended, the children ran into her room excitedly to tell her. Dumarie responded irritably, I know it is, now go back to bed. In the event, it took Tommy over a year to make his way back home. He had to finish out the war with the Japanese even after VE Day in May 1945 and oversee the safe return of troops and equipment. But Dumarie took his delayed return as a sign that Tommy wasn't very interested in coming back, that he didn't care enough about her to make his way home quickly. She began writing to friends that Tommy was in no hurry to return because he was, quote, having far too good a time out there, something that couldn't have been farther from the truth. But perhaps this belief made it easier for Dumarier to legitimate her frustration toward him. Tommy was loyal and perhaps as naive as ever, writing Dumarier on their 13th wedding anniversary in July of 1945, quote, I've never for one single second regretted accepting your proposal of marriage, though I was a bit scared at the time and was too much of a gentleman to refuse you. You needn't worry about us being able to settle down after the war. 
The week Tommy wrote that letter, Dumarier was vacationing in St. Ives with Christopher Puxley and her two younger children, both of whom liked Christopher. She had continued to see Christopher here and there, and her feelings for him were certainly different now than they had been in the first heady months of their relationship. Over the years, Dumarier's feelings for him had grown much calmer and much more easily managed. Since 1943, she had stopped feeling much guilt either. Christopher was, as she put it, quote, the nicest man I know, after Tommy. And she was in a difficult situation with her husband gone. Guilt seemed beside the point to her. But by 1945, she had long realized that what she had with Christopher was simply a stopgap relationship, something to pass the time until Tommy returned. She had been open with Christopher about this for a while, but now she felt, with the war having just ended, that the time had come to stop seeing him. The children remembered Christopher seeming gloomy and morose that weekend, probably an indication that he had never expected Dumarie to follow through on her promises. The ending of the war made many of the situations she had set up over the last years unnecessary. In summer of 1945, Dumarie also parted ways with the MRA. She couldn't believe anymore after so many years of war that the world revolution would begin in each of us. She had written to her MRA friend, Gartheline, quote, Don't put me on a pedestal. My feet are made of clay. The group left for America, and Garth came to visit her before he left. He wrote to her later to ask whether there had been, quote, something you wanted to say, but not quite, since she had seemed so reserved and thoughtful. In the event, she never did say that something and continued to be formally associated with the MRA. But things were never really the same after the war. She just didn't need the comforts the organization provided anymore now that the world had returned to normal. Well, almost to normal. During the year it took Tommy to return, Dumarie began to suggest that they sleep in separate beds, her way of signaling to Tommy that things between them had definitely changed, whether he believed it or not. His response was initially one of silence, and then a few weeks later, quote, I never answered whether I'd want a separate room from you. No, I want my roots. But in case it makes you start not sleeping as you fear, I can always creep into the spare room. Dumarie's letters made Tommy very nervous about seeing her again. As the date of his return drew near, Tommy began to worry about the changes in his appearance over the last year or so since they had seen each other. Tommy warned that now that he was 50, quote, you'll find me round as a tub and bald as a coot. And he also wrote to her explaining that he now had to wear reading glasses. Within the weeks before Tommy arrived, Dumarie suddenly and unaccountably became very excited to see him. Something of the old feeling for him revived, and under its spell, she made herself up as beautifully as she could the day that he arrived. She wrote now to a friend that she was, quote, determined to make a real effort and not seem to be different at all 
because I do love him very deeply. Their meeting, unfortunately, went nothing like either had hoped. It fell flat, as she later put it. Instead of the overwhelming love and excitement she had come to hope for, there was nothing but, quote, a peck on the cheek. The next weeks were no better. The readjustment period was every bit as hard as Dumarier had feared. They didn't make love during Tommy's entire six-week furlough, which made Dumarier feel like, quote, a dull, gray-haired, nearly 40 wife. Tommy had a very difficult time adjusting to the children who were not used to having him around. I mean, Christopher had never lived with him at all, and whom Tommy was not used to having around. Needless to say, there were a lot of tense times at the Browning home after the war ended. These tense times never really completely went away. The Brownings never divorced, but they did drift apart. Dumarier realized, as she wrote to a friend, that, quote, The sad thing is that looking back now over the years, I realized that the thing that kept our marriage happy was the actual fact that we were together all the time, and I somehow adapted myself to his ways. Our minds and thoughts were really poles apart, but I used to squash my thoughts so as to be in with him. Now, the less we see of each other, the more apart we become. Once she gained a taste of independence, of the freedom to be simply herself, not Tommy Browning's wife, Dumarier was never able to go back. Hereafter, she fell in love with a few women she met and transferred much of her affection to them, especially after she discovered that Tommy was cheating on her with women he knew. One of her most popular novels, My Cousin Rachel, was based on one of the women Dumarier fell in love with after the war, a woman named Ellen Doubleday. Although she and Tommy never divorced, eventually she was forced to part ways with the other half of the most important relationship of her life, Menabilly. The new, rashly heir took over the house she attended and cherished for two decades in 1969. When she moved out, she felt that, quote, it is a bit like the breakdown of a marriage without the finality of death or even the disturbance of divorce. Even in the last few years of her life, in the late 1980s, she continued to visit Manabilly every Monday, where she would haunt the grounds like an unwelcome ghost, unable to let go of the thing she had loved best of all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inviolable Voices. Special thanks to Chris Hawley this week for the music for this episode. If you like the show, you can rate or review us on iTunes, or you can tweet at us at InvioblePod, or you can follow our Instagram account at Inviolable Voices Podcast. Spread the word any way you can. Thanks for listening this week, and tune in next week for another episode of Inviolable Voices. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Nadia Padilla. For more information on this episode, including the sources I used for my research, please visit my website at inviolablevoices.com. That's I N V 
I-O-L-A-B-L-E-V-O-I-C-E-S dot com. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell as many people as you can about us. You might also consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes. Thanks so much and tune in next week for another episode of Inviolable Voices. Voices.